when I said that I wasn't the only person who wrote Chef. That's very true. Part of the reason I say that is that there's all these people who own Chef, you know, in a very real way. As soon as they put that software in Chef, they own Chef. And it bonds to you in a way that isn't the same as just being a passive consumer of the software. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. All right, we are kicking this off. I am live today with Adam Jacob of Chef. He's the project creator, and I guess he would be the historical principal contributor. Is there a way to phrase it? <laughs> I've never heard it phrased that way, but yeah. Historical principal contributor means I started it in the first place, but then thousands of people have written the code over time. But yeah, and and, yes. and we, we'd hate to not give everybody appropriate credit. Yeah, for sure. Like there was a blank screen and there, and there was me and that's very real. But yeah, plenty of other people. But yes, I'm the original author of Chef and Habitat too. And, and what's awesome about this, this show, if we want to call it that, is that we had to hear, Adam, about that blank screen. So uh, let's start with, with that. Uh, take us to the beginning of Chef. How, how did it all get started? Yeah, well, I think in order to understand sort of how Chef got started, um, I, have to, I have to tell you a little bit more about, about me. So I was, a, I'm, I'm, was, am really, honestly, a systems administrator. That's what I've, I've, my career has been. Um, I came up sort of in that era of ISPs, you know, when there were lots of small ISPs, like in dentist's offices and all kinds of random yeah. locations <laughs> um, that then sort of got consolidated over time. And then as the ISPs consolidated, as the U.S. market became more stable, what you saw was uh, a lot of the folks who ran those ISPs wound up then running the Internet companies in that first generation of, of Internet companies. Um, and so that whole time I was a systems administrator and I had worked for this, the same sort of series of folks for a long time. Um and to make a long story short, we had a there was there was a very clear minute where it was obvious that the work that I had done for them over the bulk of a decade just wasn't particularly appreciated as much mm. as I had hoped that it was. And so I was it was a very pretty day in Seattle, and I called my best friend and former coworker Nathan Haney Smith and co-founder of Chef as well, and said, "Hey, you know what we should do? We should quit our jobs and go be consultants." He was working for IBM at the time, and uh, and he was like, yeah, you're right, we should. And I was like, great, I will find us someone who'll pay our bills. And then, uh, and did. And so we started a consulting company that was called HJK. Um, and what we did was sell automated infrastructure to startups. So you'd pay us a fixed upfront fee, and then we would automate everything from provisioning to uh, configuration management, uh, monitoring, trending, identity management, application deployment, all of the stuff uh, we would automate for you for a fixed fee. And then we would take a retainer to maintain it over time. And the plan was that we would become these hyper-efficient consultants and that we would make a bunch of cash on the upfront fees because we would charge you a lot uh, and we would be really efficient at doing it. That turned out to be true. Um, so the fastest we turned one around was 24 hours from signed contract to we automated someone's entire business, um, which was rad. And that, you're, you're reusing code across mm -hmm. uh, projects, I guess? Well, at least we were trying to, yeah. Right. What happened was, as we got bigger and were more successful, and we were, and that was awesome, it turned out that the ongoing maintenance of those customers was a pain. Um, and there were a couple of things. So one was 
you know, any given person only really cares about their problem. So, you know, the way to think about that is if you run a database and your application works because you tweak a particular setting on the database, if I can automate the database for you, but I can't tweak that setting, you don't care. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't mm-hmm. useful. doesn't matter how yep. cool it was. It just doesn't have any value. Um, and so every individual customer was quite happy with their automation, right? Because it was all working for them. Yeah. Uh, but when it came time to try to maintain it or update it or refactor it, they were very little appetite for that because obviously uh, it, it didn't necessarily show them a lot of upside. And so we found ourselves in a place where we just weren't getting the economy of scale we needed out of the technology we had built initially. Um, using Puppet and uh, and a couple of other things to sort of make that stuff work. And we'd also had um, just some, like there was a there was a moment in in that early era of when we were building the systems that like it was a hard minute for for the industry. Like it was it was the beginning of EC two. Uh, we saw the first of the sort of second wave of web companies and the first like Facebook apps really hit and have massive scale sort of instantaneously. And so there was just a lot going on in the market at that minute. And so our decision as a consultant company and and as co-founders was, hey, either we can basically wind this thing down because it's not as much fun as we wanted it to be, or uh, we could see if we could write something that would be better at solving this problem of being able to maintain all of these different customers' environments from a single place. Um, and my co-founders and friends were like, hey, you know what? We'll pay your bills um, and take care of all these customers. You go see if you can solve this problem. And so I, I did. Um, and from there, that's what Chef became. So so you're still, yeah, I mean, you operated as a group, but you were you were no longer doing client work. You were doing this project on the side. Yeah, that's right. They basically took me off all the client work and stuck me in just doing nothing but trying to see if I could build a system that would let us manage this, you know, the what, probably 20 or 25 customers that we had better than we had before. Um, and the results of that work was, was Chef. Got it. And, and was there ambition at that point that this could be bigger than solving your client work? Well, sort of. So we'd had a we'd had a moment where we had met Jesse Robbins, who is uh, with the founding CEO of Chef, would become the founding CEO of Chef, um, where he had been doing some work with O'Reilly. He'd worked at Amazon for a long time, and he was the master of disaster was his title. And Jesse is a is a force of nature. Uh, for those of you who might not know Jesse, Jesse's an incredibly smart and capable human who when we tried to recruit him to our consulting company, it was like, man, get out of here. Like, I'm not, I, I can be my own consultant. I don't, I don't need to hitch my wagon to you guys. But if you come up with the products, you know, give me a call. And so uh, we came up with this product. I called Jesse and was like, hey, do you want to see this thing I've been building? And he was, you know, said yes. And we showed it to him and he was like, this is awesome. There's a company here. Like, we should start a company that does this. This should be a, a software company. And we should go raise venture capital. And I was like, that sounds great. We should absolutely go and do that. I have no idea how to do that, but let's do that. And also nobody, you know, you're, you're in venture capital. How many systems administrators have you invested in? Who's like I, last title was systems administrator. None come to mind. Well, one, me. Right. So there you go. Right. 
me, I'm it. Um, but that's because of Jesse Robbins. <laughs> like, like that, like all of that comes together, you know, because of those relationships. So it was really Jesse that saw that what we could be is be a software project and that we could really be like a company. And it was also Jesse who brought um, some other really incredible talent to Chef that I think, you know, without which the Chef wouldn't be what it was. So, you know, Chris Brown, um, who was one of the original engineers on EC2 um, and was a very, you know, Chef employee number one basically number two, maybe um, if you don't count every number one, if you count nobody else uh, who worked at HJK at the time yeah. who, you know, had an incredible impact on the technology. So Jesse also opened a lot of doors, not only um, to venture capital, but also to, to resources and talent. And, and we should acknowledge here, nothing is open source yet at this point. Is that right? Well, so we knew that it was going to be, so I'm an open source person and um i was trying to decide if i was going to use the word zealot or um <laughs> or or what but we'll just go with an open source person um <laughs> like i believe in open source not only as a um as a development model but i'm, I'm a free software person i believe in in like the idea that software isn't it's an important thing that software be free and be open and in particular i think in infrastructure software i think it's important that it be free and be open yep. and so we always knew that we were going to open source it um we also knew that there was you know there was software in the market already that did similar things to what we did so there was some barrier to entry there of just how good would it be and what would it be and um and so our original business model was that we were going to open source all of Chef, and then we would run a hosted configuration management service um, called Hosted Chef, cleverly enough. Um, and that would be what people would pay for. We were just way too early. This was 10 years ago. The market was just not at all ready for a hosted configuration management business. They were very ready for Chef. They just weren't ready for, for a hosted configuration management service. Now... I get a lot of shenanigans uh, where people are like, dude, you should, this should be a hosted service that I don't have to pay for. And I'm just like, God, you jerks. Like I did this for you. And you know, you just didn't care. Where, where do we go from? So Jesse gets involved. You're talking to the VCs. Take us through the launch. Yeah. So, I mean, we raised, um, we, you know, we raised money at a very dark period in the economy. So it was the, the market had just crashed and was pretty, uh, it was it was pretty bleak. Um, we got turned down a lot, and then we met uh, the folks at DFJ, Bill Bryant, who saw what what we were building and uh, and believed in us and believed in the idea. So we also found through the Velocity Conference um, that Jesse was chairing, co-chairing through O'Reilly, um, we had made some pretty great connections to folks. And so one of the folks that I showed it to was Ezra, Ezra Zygmuntovich, who was at Engine Yard at the time. And Ezra um, was busily building the Engine Yard Cloud. I don't know if anybody remembers the Engine Yard Cloud, but mm -hmm. Engine Yard Cloud was a big deal, um, especially for deploying Ruby on Rails applications to AWS in the early days. And he was also thinking in a very similar way to me about what kind of configuration management system they should use to build it. And so I showed him an early chef demo and he liked it. And so we spent a week or two with Ezra building uh, the engineered cloud to use chef and what was called chef solo. So uh, we had some vision of having a chef server. Ezra didn't need that because he had a system that already knew how to do it. And so he and I just hung out together and uh, ported the engineered cloud to Chef before they had launched engineered cloud and before we had launched Chef. And so we had some pretty strong validation that we were onto something before we had ever launched the product. But then 
uh, we did announce the, both the company's existence and the, and the product sort of at the same time. And it was all open source the day we launched. There was no hosted service the day we, we, we launched. We launched with an open source product. So launched the open source, announced the kind of company funding all on yep. the same day. Yep. And uh, you had a lot of validation. You had your own clients internally. This, is, this was working for you. It solved your need, uh, or at least the, the kind of consulting firm's need. And then you had solved this one person. This engine, I mean, Engineer's need was pretty big. Like that was, right. they were, they bet, they bet the whole farm on it, you know? Um, yeah. And that was a huge, a huge benefit early on. The, you know, when we launched, certainly I was, I had made a lot of friends in the configuration management community over the years. And so I had showed it to a lot of those folks and many of them liked it. Some of them didn't, but a lot of them did. And, and Ezra and Engineer's endorsement went a long way um, into making it real for people. Um, it was also, it didn't hurt that it was written in Ruby and that the DSL was just Ruby, which at the time this was like near sort of near peak rails. Um, so that, that made a big difference too. That community was very open and welcoming to us. And then how did, how does the open source aspects of the project grow at this point? It, it's largely, you've written most, if not all the code and, and it's, it's now, uh, on GitHub or something similar. Yeah. So we posted it to GitHub. Uh, it was always on GitHub and it grew massively. Um, you know, hundreds of contributors in months, uh, you know, thousands in years, a lot of that early development happened on IRC and was just was very open. So, you know, the whole of the company was on IRC plus every single person that was using the product, basically, and all of the people who were doing development. And so it was a very that was a fun era um, of, of really a lot of building, a lot of collaboration, um, a lot of accepting people's new work. And the community itself really formed up around that kind of collaboration and around, you know, it became this very welcoming place where, um, you know, a good story from that early era of open source development was people would just wander into the IRC channel because it was called Chef, thinking that it was talking about some, you know, talking about food. We had a kid who showed up and was going on his first, like, was, was going to cook dinner for a first date. And he was looking for recommendations about what to cook. And so like, you know, this like 300 or 400 person IRC channel, like crowdsourced what the right thing to cook was. If you couldn't, if you were, if you'd never cooked before and you were going on a date, like what's a good, hard to mess up, but still slightly impressive thing to cook. And I think we, we landed on like, you know, carbonara or something. Yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. So you, you served, I mean, you rolled with it and. Yeah. And like, that's a very, it's a very chef thing to just yeah. sort of solve whatever the thing is that's in front of you rather than get too pedantic about whether it's supposed to be that, that way or not. Before we get too far, tell us about the name, the analogy, uh, how'd you happen into the concept of, of kind of basing it around chef? Yeah. So, you know, like I said at the very beginning and in, in passing, um, we, we had, I had been a, a pretty large puppet user. Um, and, at the time, the when I first started, I was just sort of building prototypes for myself, and I called the prototype marionette, right? Because it was a kind of puppet. But I don't know if you've ever typed the word marionette, but it yeah. sucks. Like the short answer is, it's awful to type the word marionette, much less to type it like over and over and over and over again, which is what you do when you name a piece of software. Um, and so I very quickly wanted something that was like as short as possible. You know, like, can I come up with just like a four letter word that would work? And the chef fit um, puppet had already sort of had a minute where they had talked about 
puppet manifests as recipes. Um, people sort of, I think, I think that's mostly a forgotten dint of history, but there was a minute mm -hmm. uh, when, when manifests were talked about as recipes. And so I'm sure that was part of what was in my mind when, when that, that particular word came up, but then the analogy just sort of took off from there. You know, you, you call it chef, you have recipes, recipes fit in cookbooks. They include their ingredients, which, you know, the metaphor kind of broke down. I should have just called everything ingredients. I should have just kept going, but you know, in the end, um, the the truth of the metaphor is that the metaphor came a deep second to the fact that it was a four-letter word. Great. Where does uh, governance emerge, if ever, in, in the Chef Project? Is that from the outset? Is that something that happens organically? Yeah. So, I mean, we had a couple of different eras. So, you know, in the very beginning, um, the governance was pretty loose. So, you know, it was clearly maintained by the contributors and by maintainers but essentially you know all the major decisions were made by me um and then it was just people sending pull requests and doing code review and there was a very f informal kind of governance you know as we grew the project and especially as the as our commercial monetization ramped up you know, we've gone through a couple different cycles of exactly how we monetize the product. So initially it was a hosted service. Then we sold on-prem software. There was a version of the hosted service, but it was slightly different than the open source software. And then eventually the open source software was the same as the software that we were selling. But then, you know, anyway, there's a lot of movement in terms of precisely what we sell. And so as, as the company got bigger, our need for governance got stronger. And so, um, you know, we moved from a model that was very ad hoc to one that was much more formalized where there's uh, an RFC process that you go through for the community to make large breaking changes. There's a formal contributor process. There's uh, maintainers who, you know, sign themselves up to maintain different subsystems of the software. Um, there's a way that those maintainers then can become lieutenants over those subsystems and have veto power. Um, and then, you know, all the way sort of up to the top of the project. But it definitely evolved over time. It didn't start with a lot of governance. It, it just ended with, it, it now has quite a bit of governance. Um, and I think that's a pretty good way to think about those sorts of problems. I think you want to have an approach early um, that allows people to contribute easily and with very little friction. And you need to have a path for those people to then gain more prestige and gain more ability to make decisions about where the software goes. And you know, even if in the beginning that's very ad hoc, um, like it was in Chef's era, you know, we had people that were maintaining like the Debian subsystems, for example, and they weren't like official lieutenants, but all the code that dealt with that subsystem went through them and they weren't my employees. So they were basically lieutenants, you know, and I think it's okay to have that governance change and evolve over time, but I think it's important to have. And did you more or less invent the governance systems yourself through evolution or do you have a source of inspiration? Yeah, certainly the beginning, my source of inspiration has always been the Apache Foundation and sort of the way that Apache runs their projects. I just have a deep respect both for the license and for the for the Apache way. I think as we grew, um, the current governance model of Chef actually was modeled a lot on Docker's early model where Docker did a really good job of being clear about like, how do you become a contributor and where do you send the pull request to think about being a contributor and, you know, those sorts of things. So later on, I think that system became much more formal and it was actually pretty inspired by Docker's specific formalization. Yeah. Go, going on to contributors, was that an objective for you with building the project? Like we need outside contributions and why and what level of importance does that have? 
Yeah. I mean, it was, certainly was a goal for me. Um, yeah. You know, I think as an engineer and as somebody who builds software and believes in open source, like when you have other people who are contributing to the software and making it better, that is that is the dream, like on a bunch of different levels. It's the social dream. It's the dream that says that people should and can take the software and have it do what they need it to do because that's their right to do. Um, and when they exercise that right, it's great validation that what you've done matters because somebody cared enough to, to improve it. I think it also gives you quite a bit of... Um, well, I'm trying to think of a good word for it, but you know, if you think about it as somebody who commits software who actually updates your code who changes the the software itself they're much more invested in that software we know earlier on when i said that i didn't i wasn't the only person who wrote chef that's very true part of the reason i say that is that there's all these people who own chef you know in a very real way as soon as they put that software in chef they own chef they own this piece of of what it is and you know i own the trademark but but certainly that software is theirs now. Um, and it bonds to you in a way that isn't the same as just being a passive consumer of the software, right? Mm -hmm. um, like we're using some software to record this podcast right now. And, it's, and it seems like really great software, but I don't care about this software. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not a part of who I am. I don't know if there'll ever be a conference about this software, you know, but the people who contributed to Chef early on, like they love Chef and they loved it then and they love it now. Um, and, you know, they may have moved on with their lives and they may have decided that they're on different trajectories or with different software or whatever, but they'll, they're Chef people for life. Just like I'm a Pearl person for life, it doesn't matter that I haven't written Pearl in a while. The mark that the Pearl community left on me, um, and I hope that I left on it, like that's a permanent thing. Um, and it's a part of my identity in a way that I don't think proprietary software can match. Um, I know that it cannot. Um, you know, you can be a user of the software, but it's never yours. Not like that. Um, and I think it's really powerful. And for me, it's the thing that I'm most love and I'm most proud of um, in, in building Chef. I'm certainly proud of the business we've built, which is great. And don't get me wrong. And and I'm super proud of how it's gone to market and all of those things. And I'm, of everyone who's ever worked at the company, our ability to build a community that has taken the software on it to its own heart um, is, is deeply meaningful to me. So, so you got these two things. You, you, the open source project is going great. The business, as you mentioned, was going well. You're proud of them both. Were they ever in conflict? Were, were there tension? And it sounds like you've got this, you've got, you're an open source person, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you had less conflict than, than others who use open source as a means to facilitate business. But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of conflict. <laughs> yeah. All right. There we go. You know, I think, look, that's always intention. You know, I, we've gotten email where we've spent, you know, months of sales resources and marketing resources and technical resources to win a deal, which we then win. And then we just get an email from procurement that's like, hey, you know, this was great. Um, you guys are the are it. You, good job. Um, we're never going to buy this from you because you gave it all away for free and your business model is bullshit, you know? <laughs> and if you've ever had an enterprise sales rep on your payroll who gets that email, it's hard to keep them on your payroll. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's not good. And that's because there's, you know, there's a lot of different open source business models. I think um, by my count, there's probably nine, but like 
um, without going into all of them, you know, Chef's model over time has become one that is called loose open core. And, you know, what that means is that we have this core of the software that's inc- that's very useful on its own. You can take it and build, you know, an entire billion dollar business on top of it. And you can never pay me a dime. I also build proprietary software around that software that I think you should buy because it will make that experience better for you. It provides better insights into the software and how it's working. It provides better governance. It provides all kinds of other things. Um, And if I get that slider right, then people will pay me. Um, But if I get the slider wrong, then people will just use the software I buy, but they won't pay me any money, at which point, you know, I've taken venture capital. If I don't grow, I die, right? So the, I think the, the tension there is very, very real because in your community, the things that you decide to make proprietary, if you make things proprietary that are incredibly burdensome, you know, so a good example here is like Elasticsearch makes authentication proprietary, right? So you mm-hmm. can use Elasticsearch for free, but you can't log into your database unless you pay the money. Now, there's, certainly there's ways around that. But the point is, that's a very intensely hostile moment, right? Like as a yeah, consumer, yeah. if you're like, oh, you want to log into your database? Well, you know, dollar bills, y'all. Um, whereas Chef's model is like, hey, go ahead, build all the infrastructure you want in the world. But, you know, if you want to do monitoring, if you want to see what's happening, if you want to be able to do those things, then you pay me money. And I think where that's getting that slider right is where the tension lives. Because the community, there's always someone in the community who's like, well, that's a stupid place to put it. Like, I want that feature. You know, I want that integration with that other piece of software. I need this proprietary thing and that should be free. And then there's on the other side, you have the commercial folks who are like, there's not enough commercial stuff in my bag. You know, I I don't want to pay you as much as you as you demand or whatever, because what I value is this other piece of the software and you set the value of that thing at zero. And I think that tension that is the key tension in building open source companies is you have to decide what your model is and why your model exists. And I think early on in Chef's life, we decided that our business model involves sort of having a huge tent at the top of the funnel. So at the top of the business, you know, you just need as many people as possible using the software. Over time, our business model has evolved. It's very clear that the people who pay money for Chef are the large enterprises, right? It's the global 3000 that pay me money. Um, it's not every person in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So what features I decide to build and how I think about what's free and what's proprietary has changed over time because my, my, my vision of who my customer is has gotten more clear over time. Um, but that's the core tension. There's always a huge amount of tension between what's proprietary and what's free and where do you draw the line. Um, and it has a huge impact on your ability to build a community because while there's a lot of Elasticsearch users in the world, um, I don't think that the Elasticsearch community is as thriving as, say, the Chef community is, if that makes sense, right? It, it's not because there isn't one or it's bad software or they're bad community stewards. Like, I'm not, I don't mean to talk shit about Elasticsearch. I'm just, uh, I'm just saying that the more proprietary it is, sort of obviously, the less what you're going to see is a thriving community building the software. You may have a thriving user community, right? But you don't have a thriving developer community in the same way. And what does that look like? Or what are the kind of measures of a strong community? I, I see a lot of people tout, you know, GitHub stars and number of contributors and these metrics. But on the other hand, some projects look like it's a half dozen people. The creators largely develop the software. Then there's everyone else who uses it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's hard to tell. 
so I think, you know, it, it also varies project to project, right? So like if you look at Chef and Ansible, Ansible has a, a huge amount of the content that Chef pushes into third-party places in the main repository for Ansible. So if you look at the number of Ansible committers, it's massive, whereas the number of Chef contributors looks smaller. Uh, however, right? And I don't know the actual counts. I'm just saying that like Chef, that we split the repositories up differently. Therefore, the counts are different. So like, it's very difficult to get a, you know, when you're talking about business metrics, you can be like, talk to me about ARR, you know? And like, we know what ARR means. And if you try to calculate ARR in some funny way, we'll all be like, get out of here with that. Like, that's not ARR, man. Like you're talking total contract value instead of annual recurring revenue or whatever, right? Or very common, like someone talks about revenue, what they mean is run rate, you know? <laughs> they're not talking yeah, about yeah. their actual revenue, they're talking about projected revenue. So like, you know, I think in open source, the it's very difficult to talk about community health in a very metrics-driven way. You can certainly talk about how many people are showing up, you can talk about contributors, uh, accounts in GitHub. You can talk about stars. I think stars are kind of a vanity metric. But for sure, the thing that you can do is when that community gathers itself together, so either uh, wherever that is, if it's in Slack or it's in IRC or it's on mailing lists or it's in person at a conference or any of those things, you can feel the difference between a community that's thriving and helping each other and and one that's not. There's an electricity that comes with the give and take of a community that is a true community. And I know that that's not a, it's not a metric, but it's real. Yeah. And I, and I imagine it's, it's very valuable. And, 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 you know, as you said, it's not only hard to measure, but it's hard to create. It's hard. There's no definite process in order to create it. It's kind of, it's a yeah, bit of. I think that's right. Like it's a reflection of, I mean, like all communities, what makes, you know, how do you choose your friends? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, right. how do you choose who you want to hang out with? How do you choose where you want to spend your time? And that's what community is. Community isn't forks on GitHub or those sorts of things. It's the human beings. And it's who do you want to talk to? Right? Who do you want to be around? Who do you want to who do you look up to? Who do you emulate? Who do you who do you want to be like? Um, what can you become? Right? Is there opportunity for you to to grow? Those are the things that make true communities communities. We like to talk about them as if they're, you know, as if contributors are about lines of code that they write. They're not. I mean, they are, but they're not. Like, it's about whether or not those human beings are invested in the community that is the software itself. And that's what makes open source special. That's what the commons is. When you boil it down to just just lines of code and like, well, I don't get enough, I don't get very many features from those people. Well, sure, you're right. Like you're the one, no one's going to care as much as the as me about Chef or about Habitat or about any of that. This is my software. You know what I mean? It came out of my brain and I pay a bunch of people to, to write it. So, you know, no, at no moment are you going to look at the number of contributors and say that the community dwarfs the corporation. The corporation dwarfs the community for sure, especially if you're looking at like lines of code because I pay them all day to do it. But that human connection, the part where the community itself cares about itself and cares about each other, that's that's the magic. Um, a good example is Chef has an RFC for hugging. I don't remember exactly how it began, <laughs> but like like I am a huggy person just as a human being. If you ever meet me um, and you want to hug, you can ask and I'm happy to hug you. But over time, that hugginess like became a thing that existed in the community and not everybody is a hugger. 
you know like that's not that doesn't that's not attractive to everyone like that that's that can actually be a real reason not to participate if you don't like hugs so we have an rfc that outlines all the different like the exact protocol for like initiating hugging and what are like good responses if you don't want to hug so like for example like the reverse head nod is a good move you can sort of cross your arms which is like no hugging but also still means i like you know like you can think of it as a hug. Um, lots of that stuff. Those things, those are the things that make community, right? It's not arguing about a patch. <laughs> it's those moments. It's the things in between. It's the times where, you know, we get together at ChefConf and, you know, we have incredible friends of the of the company, Derek Mazzoni, who's a, a, a world DJ at KEXP. You know, Derek finds incredible music acts, that are local to the place we hold the conference and puts together an incredible show for everybody. It's those things. That's what makes community. Yes, we're there around the software, but that's what community is. You, you mentioned something interesting, this, this idea, going back to the tension and the salesperson who, uh, whose deals lost because they're going open source. Mm-hmm. Is that ever kind of also like a backwards win for the open source project? Like, do, do, Does part of you think, we need to have a few, you know, stalwart companies who are, are betting on this software, even if they're not paying us. Yeah. And so let's let's make this work, you know, even if they're not customers. I mean, certainly that's this that's true in the beginning, right? Yeah. Um, when yeah. you just like when you just need users, um, because you need the validation and you need the market to know that you're for real. You know, ten years in, um, with a whole lot of customers, it would be very rare for me to decide that what I should do is engage deeply with someone who isn't willing to understand that if they don't pay for the software, the software doesn't get made. Certainly it doesn't get yeah. made for them. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> you know, which doesn't mean that I don't care about people who don't pay for the software. I do in particular human beings who are going to use chef to solve their problems. I care about quite deeply. Right. But if you're a billion dollar company and you decide that or multi-billion dollar company and you decide that you're going to use the open source software to run your company god bless you like i want you to do that i just don't want you to come to me (laughs) to help you do it unless you want to pay me money because i pay a bunch of people to do that and you've decided that you don't want to be a part of the of that cycle which is okay by me it just means that what i have to do is put my attention elsewhere and that is also an interesting point of tension right because you know, if you're a person who's just trying to solve your problem and you're using Chef and you work at one of those companies and you don't have that relationship with me, what happens to your sense of community when you try to engage, right? Because what you get is a little bit of a stiff arm from 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 me or, or from the, the company. And that that feels gross, you know? That feels less welcoming and less good than you would like it to feel. But the cold truth of it is that it's just, it kind of has to be that way, <laughs> you know, like the, uh, otherwise there'd be, there'd be no business at all and therefore there'd be no software. So, you know, it's, I think it's, I think it is tough in the early days. Sure. Um, we certainly invested in folks who we knew weren't going to pay us just for the win, but I very quickly got to a place where, um, in order to to have those relationships, they needed to pay me something. So, you know, even if it wasn't going to be as much as I wanted or as much as I knew it was worth, um, they needed to have some relationship with me so that that would be easy. Um, and we don't do that really at all anymore because we don't need to, right? So let's wrap up the story on Chef. Where is it today? It's a fairly mature project. Are there there still things you're doing to kind of 
advance the project in certain directions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the big thing for Chef in, you know, look, the product's 10 years old. So anytime you have software that's lived 10 years, that's good software in some way, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and certainly it continues to evolve. I think yeah, it's it's one of the things that's different is that, you know, 10-year-old software tends to be stable software, right? You have a lot of users. You don't actually want the software to change all that much, not in dramatic ways, right? Because if you did, that would be painful for things that have now become sort of pillars of your use. Um, what I think is changing, though, is the industry is starting to figure out where we want to think about the different layers in the stack. So, you know, what's the relationship between the application and my operating system? And what kind of tooling do I want to run different layers of that stack? And I think for Chef, being so focused at the historically at the infrastructure layer, Chef's big value in addition to that was that it could go anywhere. You know, it's a programming language, so you can just write whatever you want that solves whatever your problem is. I think the evolution of Chef as we go forward in time is going to really be about thinking about how can it be the best possible thing at that infrastructure layer, right? Um, a little bit going back to its roots and saying, hey, you know, as we expanded and grew to manage so many different kinds of applications and so many different kinds of things, maybe we lost sight of how to make it as easy as possible to just manage the infrastructure that needs to run those applications. Um, and so I think the future of Chef's development is to really think about what can Chef do to really rethink what that initial experience is of running infrastructure and how can we make that better? Awesome. Maybe as a final topic for us as we wrap up, you, you've highlighted in a way that I don't think many do very well, the value of a community and, and the social benefits, for lack of a better phrase, of open source project community. For, for listeners who, who, want, who maybe aren't experiencing that, want to experience that, how, how, do, how do they engage with the community? Or maybe a, a, a related question would be, should they seek that relationship with every piece of software they're using? Or do you kind of pick and choose your communities? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I, for my part, I think that I want that relationship to my software. Um, if yeah. I can get it, look, I don't have it to all the software that I use. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm using Chrome to do this right now. And I don't have much of a relationship with Chrome other than as a user. Do you know what I mean? Yep, yep. I'm not a part of some kind of like Chrome community. I'm sure one exists, but it's not, but I'm not there, you know, it's on a windows box. I'm also not a part of the windows community, but through the course of my career, you know, there have been communities that have supported me and moved me forward. The Perl community is one, the Ruby community is another, the Rust community is another, you know, certainly the Chef community, the Inspect community, the Habitat community, the ones we've created uh, have made that impact. And I, I think as a as somebody thinking about open source, when you're choosing where to put your time and your effort, I think you should think about and invest in the communities that are places you want to be, that are that are populated with people that you want to be around. And yes, it's about the software solving your problem, of course, but it's not just that. Do you know what I mean? Because there's a lot of problems you could solve in the world. Yeah. And so you do kind of have to decide, like, are these the people I want to be with? Is this is this the place I want to be around? And and if so, why? You know, what is it? What what are they doing? to help me as a person or to help each other? Um, and how are they behaving toward each other? Um, does it, do they lighten my load? Do they brighten my day? And I think, I think that's incredibly important. And it's a thing that you don't get to do 
when it's just consuming software. You know, for a lot of us, we go to work, we consume the software we're told to consume, and we build the software we're told to build. Um, but when you're in an open source community, it's not that way, right? Um, we get to choose to be in these places. We get to choose to be with these people and to do this work. And and that choice is a powerful one. And I think you should vote with your feet a little bit um, about wanting to be a part of communities that are diverse and inclusive and kind and 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 care about about the human beings that are are involved in the software that that you're helping to build. You know, if you want to build a community like that, I think it starts by just saying that you want to do that. You know what I mean? Like the setting the intention in the world and saying to people that that's the kind of community you want to create and you value it. And this is why um, that's that's the first thing, you know, and then you need to give those communities places to gather and you need to be present inside them and you need to sort of try to live your values and you won't always get it right. And, you know, when you get it wrong, you can apologize and hopefully you'll have built up enough goodwill that people will go along with you anyway. But that's I hate to I hate to trivialize it, but that's all there is to it. Yeah. This has been fantastic, Adam. I, I tend to look at open source from kind of a business lens and it's it's been wonderful and kind of inspirational to, to reflect during this conversation on kind of societal and, and social benefits of these communities. Thank you very much. Thank you for your contributions to and, and, and creation of Chef. That's my pleasure. And your time today. Yeah, thanks. It's been It's been fun. Find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.